Uh, our scripture reading today is Revelation 1, 9 through 20, and our scripture reader is Dan Wanshura. In honor of God's word, please stand. Listen as I read. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Dan. Um, so we are, we're starting a new series. Uh, it's going to be a total of eight weeks, including today. And it's uh, walking through these, these, uh, these seven churches that you just heard referenced at the end of chapter one. Uh, and so the seven churches of, of Revelation. So what we're going to do uh, this morning is try to treat today a little bit like an introduction. Uh, what is the book of Revelation? And then what is going on in these verses that set up the actual specific word uh, that is sent to each of the seven churches. So the book of Revelation, <clears throat> if you were to go to the very first verses of Revelation chapter 1, you see the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, so we get this, this phrase right off the bat, the revelation of, of Jesus Christ. Now, when, when you hear that, uh, when you even just maybe think about the book of Revelation, uh, it may stir up some things uh, in you. Um, some, some of you uh, have grown up uh, maybe uh, hearing about the book of Revelation. Maybe you went to a church uh, growing up that was really, really big <clears throat> into Revelation. Uh, if you grew up in the 70s, I think everybody was into Revelation. Um, it's it's, uh, it's, it's uh, quite an interesting uh, 22 chapters of, of content. Um, one of the first reactions that, that you often see or hear with the book of Revelation is confusion. Uh, a lot of people think that this book is full of vague, uh, maybe like secret codes uh, that can't be deciphered, 
Or maybe your experience is that people decipher them all the time and they do anything they want with them and they bend them and they make them into all kinds of creative uh, ideas. Uh, maybe you have heard that Revelation actually, you know, like credit cards are, are part of like, you know, if you look in Revelation, you can find like credit cards. That's what the, that's it. That's what's the mark of the beast. That's how the, the, the world's going to fall apart. Or barcodes on uh, on any item, uh, the, the, the search for the Antichrist, uh, the search for the specific days that the world is going to end. Um, when I was in, in junior high and high school, late 80s, early 90s, um, you know, like, uh, like you do, you, know, you sit at a lunch table with a group of people. And um, it, during my, uh, I, I think it was during my ninth grade year was the first one that I remember, uh, but someone had predicted a specific date for the end of the world. And, um, you know, I mean, we're, we're like, you know, we're like 13, 14, 15 year old boys. And my lunch table cared about this. Like it had, the news had gotten out that this date was on the calendar. Like this date was coming and it was going to be the end of the world. And I remember them all knowing I'm a pastor's kid. And so they're all asking me all kinds of questions about the book of Revelation and is the world going to end? And, uh, you know, to be fair, uh, this is an intimidating book. It's, it's a complicated book. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, he, he said, Though John, the author of this, uh, of this book, though John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature as wild as, the, as one of his commentators. And so G.K. Chesterton says, if you've read Revelation, there's all kinds of scary images in there. None of them are as scary as the people who try to interpret it, who try to figure it out. Uh, John Calvin, maybe you know this, but John Calvin didn't even really try to write a commentary on Revelation uh, because of the, the, the nature of the content. Uh, I heard a pastor say one time, if you've not gone crazy yet, try studying the book of Revelation. Um, it, it's, uh, it's not only been seen as confusing, that, that's often a primary reaction, but it's also been experienced as scary. And, and that's kind of the second uh, reaction is uh, the reaction of, of fear. Uh, you know, I just mentioned it, but the idea of the end of the world, um, the idea of uh, being left behind. So back in the 70s, there were some, some movies uh, that, were, that were made. And uh, if you know what I'm talking about, then you know what I'm talking about. Um, but Thief in the Night and, and, and th these, these movies where it was like super, super scary that, that Jesus was going to return and take, take his people out of the earth and leave all the, like all the losers. The, all the losers got left and it just got, it got really, really bad and really, really tragic. And, um, you know, I, I joke about this, but, you know, during my upbringing, like my, my, my dad, my dad was a pastor and we lived right beside our church. And so uh, usually when I came home, somebody was at our house. I mean, I had four siblings and it was not very common that I would come home to an empty house. But, but if I came home to an empty house, it was like one of my first thoughts was <laughs> like, did the rapture happen? Did I get left? Did I get left behind? And I can laugh about it now, but I wasn't laughing about it, you know, then. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, 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 the Revelation has, you know, these, these accounts of, of beasts, of, of torture. And, and so there's this, this dynamic at play and just, just the idea of the end of the world. Um, it, these, are, these are things that stir a lot of fear um, in, in people. And a lot of people did. They experienced the book of Revelation as, as fear and, and dread. Well, look, there's definitely some confusing parts, and there are definitely some scary parts. But it is a bummer that those things have such a big footprint, 
Because that is not the point or the purpose of the book that we know as Revelation. Uh, The word revelation is the English translation of a Greek word that means apocalypse. And apocalypse means to uncover or to reveal. So think about that for a second. God gave us the book of Revelation so that we could see more clearly. That he could actually reveal things to us. Now, based on what I just said, that is not most people's experience. Most people do not look at the 22 chapters of Revelation and be like, oh, yeah, now I get it. Most people look at the 22 chapters of Revelation and they're, they're worse off, more confused, more frustrated, more fearful. And yet God's intention in giving it to us was to actually reveal things. So apocalypse or apocalyptic literature, it, it's a type of, it's a genre, it's a type of literature uh, that the Jewish people, for example, would have been pretty familiar with. There, there are Old Testament books of the Bible in the Hebrew Scriptures. Ezekiel and Daniel would be two good examples of, of literature that is apocalyptic. And so the Jewish people, as they were deeply committed to the Hebrew Scriptures, they understood that what's going on with Ezekiel and Daniel, what's going on with apocalyptic literature, the, the rules are a little different. What, 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 is, what is happening on the pages of uh, apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic literature, it, it's a little different. And they, they, they would be more aware of that than, than we would. Uh, one scholar says that apocalyptic literature is full of symbolic visions that reveal a heavenly perspective on history in light of its final outcome. And so there's this recognition that what's going on on these pages, this is not narrative, it's not poetry, it's, it's more complex, and, and we're not very familiar with apocalyptic literature. Uh, the Jewish people would have been much better off in this regard, but symbolic visions that reveal a heavenly perspective on history. In other words, uh, God is looking down from heaven and giving us an inside look on what's going on, what has gone on, what is happening right now, what's going to happen in light of the final outcome. Now, um, one, one of my favorite stories to try to give you a sense of maybe what God is doing, um, and I forgot to ask Tom if I could share this, but, but a few years ago, uh, maybe f- seven years ago, uh, uh, Tom Rydell uh, is a football fan, and Michigan was playing Michigan State, and, um, and Tom was going to dinner that night and had a commitment and could not watch the game live, and he recorded the game. And um, Tom had you know, done everything to keep all the news of, you know, don't give me any updates, don't tell me any scores. And as I remember the story, they were sitting at dinner and their waiter comes up to the table and says, how about those Spartans? And totally gives away the fact that Michigan State had won the game. Well, Tom had recorded the game. And so even though he knew that Michigan State won, he still went home and watched it. Now, in 2015... I think it was 2015, maybe 2017, whenever this game was, um, it's the game where with 10 seconds left, the University of Michigan is up by two, and they have the ball. And it's all they really need to do is just punt the ball, and they win the game. But they hike it, and the punter fumbles it, and then tries to throw it, And Michigan State picks up the ball, and as time expires, tumbles into the end zone, and Michigan State beats Michigan. Yeah. (laughs) But so now, now, here's, here's what I want you to do. Put yourself in Tom's shoes. Tom has been told that the Spartans win the game. 
But now he's watching the game, and as the fourth quarter's unfolding, it's like, wait a minute, was the waiter wrong? How could this be? That, that Michigan State doesn't have the ball. Is all they're going to do is punt, and the clock's going to run out. How in the world are they going to win? And you, you could see, I mean, I, as, I, as Tom was telling me the story, I was just like, that's a good illustration of, of the book of Revelation. That the book of Revelation is helping us try to figure out in the middle of this craziness, in the middle of a world that can feel like it's falling apart. God, God is coming in with this gift, this final book of, of the scriptures, and he's trying to tell us, hey, I know it seems crazy, but like this is where it's headed. This is, this is what's going to happen. It's these visions, it's this it's revealing from a heavenly perspective on history in light of where it's going, on light of the final outcome. Sometimes life here can be really confusing. Uh, the book of Revelation is a gift from God that reveals his perspective on what's happening. Uh, it's a re- revelations given by Jesus. Verse 1 tells us that. To an angel, to an author named John, and then eventually uh, you know, to the churches and to us. And so this, this revealing, it was, a, it, was a, uh, it was by means of a vision or by visions. And you, you could do this on your own. But if you just work through that first chapter and look at words like saw or seen, there's a, there's a recognition here where, where John is getting vision. John is experiencing pictures, symbolic visions, what one scholar calls verbal pictures. And so he's taking these verbal pictures and he's trying to write them down. He's, try, he's trying to describe what, what he's seen. And if you've watched a, a movie or, or like a sci-fi movie with, with this kind of imagery, it's, it's just not as easy to take something that you see and put it into writing. And so, so John is trying to say, God revealed this to me. God, God showed this to me. But now I'm trying to put it in, in writing for you. And so it's these verbal pictures or these symbolic visions that God gave for, to, uh, by Jesus to an angel, to John, to us. So as you read through this book, you know, there's tons of things that can leave you being like, what, does that, what is that a picture of? What, what, is that, what does that mean? And so you could say, is this, is this book true? And the answer is, is it true? Yes. Is it all literal? The answer is no. For example, in verse 16 of chapter 1 that you just heard read, Jesus does not actually literally have a two-edged sword in his mouth. Chapter 1, verse 16. Jesus does not literally have a sword in his mouth. That, that, is, that is figurative. That is a verbal picture. It's a symbolic vision. It's an invitation for us to try to understand the nature of what God is doing in the world. And there are tons of them throughout this book. So it's an apocalypse. It's apocalyptic literature. But it's not just that. Greg Beale is a, a, what probably has the best commentary on Revelation. He says it's apocalypse, but it's also prophecy and it's a letter. So look at this quickly. I just talked about the apocalyptic part, but prophecy. What is prophecy? Prophecy is a declaration. It's a declaration from God. It's a declaration about the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. As we read through, this, this, uh, uh, through these 22 chapters, we, we see that. Some of it is about what was happening in real time. Some of it's about what's already happened in the past. Some of it 
is about what was yet to come. It is a revealing, but more than any other book in the New Testament, it only makes sense if you read it looking at the Old Testament. It's thought of as futuristic, and some of it is. But the Old Testament plays a huge part in understanding Revelation. And if you don't believe me, listen to this stat. There are about 400 verses in the book of Revelation. But there are about 500 Old Testament references and allusions. 400 verses, over 500 Old Testament references. And so throughout the entire book, it's like as John writes, his intentions for us are to constantly see the sections of the Old Testament that he's pointing to. And to, 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 in a sense, uh, let, let, let them bring them to life. Uh, Eugene Peterson actually says it's like, it's like John is taking these sections of the Old Testament and like washing them in water, like baptizing them in water and then bringing them to bear and being like, oh, that's what that was pointing to. Oh, that's what that was meaning. Oh, that's what that was intending. Eugene Peterson actually goes as far as to say, I do not read Revelation to get anything new. Now, that's probably a little bit of an overstatement, but you can see his instincts there. He's saying if the average is 1.25 Old Testament references for every single verse, then there's a very real sense in which what John, what God is doing, the visions that he's giving to John are allowing us to take the Old Testament and to realize what the Old Testament was pointing forward to, to realize what the Old Testament wants us to see. And so it's, it's prophecy. It's a declaration from God. And then third, it's a letter. John wrote this to a group of people, a group of people who sat down and read it in the first century, and they were helped by it. It is clear that this was a letter that was meant to be circulated among real churches. In a second, we'll talk about the names of those churches, the cities that they were in. This was a real letter to real people. So while there's much for us to learn, our understanding has to be anchored in the historical context what it meant for the original readers. We, we, have to, we have to take that into consideration. And much of what's happened with Revelation over the last generations has been this, you know, the wild, wild west. It's just taking Revelation and doing anything you want with it. But we really must recognize that these were, this was a letter that was written to real people in the first century. So maybe, maybe to make it clearer or to make it simpler, we do not need a recent or a new anti-Christian world power like the USSR in the, in the 80s or maybe you would think of China now or you know, you know, fill in the blank. We, we don't need a new world power in order to understand the book of Revelation. First century Rome gives us the appropriate context. We don't need Israel to be reconstituted as a nation in 1948 in order to understand the book of Revelation. Now, these things might be examples of the trajectory of the world that Revelation is pointing to, but we don't need them. The original readers found this helpful. They understood in light of the Old Testament, in light of the way that God has been at work in the world, the book of Revelation was, was, was an asset to them, was, was valuable to them long before the United States of America existed, long before credit cards or barcodes or the USSR or China as it is now. 
So while it's revealed, the verbal pictures often lead to a lot of questions. So we're not doing a study of the entire book of Revelation, but what we are dealing with is the seven letters to the churches. Uh, And we don't want to ever let this thought get very far away. Revelation is the final declaration that God keeps his promise to make the world right again. So as we go through the book of Revelation, I, I, don't, I don't ever, you know, if you sit down and read that, don't ever let that idea get very far away from you. What one realization I had a few years ago was that, oh, Genesis 1 and 2 were not written primarily to give us a timeline. You know, Moses was the, was the author of Genesis. He's answering kind of different questions than we would ask in our current moment. So Genesis 1 and 2 were not primarily given to, to, to create a timeline. And guess what? The book of Revelation was not primarily given to give you a timeline. Are there things that you can do that might be helpful there? Probably. But that's not the primary purpose of the book of Revelation. The primary purpose of the book of Revelation is a, a final declaration that God keeps his promise to make the world right again. He's going to do it. He's going to finish it. So it might be complicated, but we cannot finish the story of God uh, the, the finish the story that God is telling without the book of Revelation. Okay, the letters to the churches. Uh, chapters 2 and 3 is where we see these, these seven letters, and it's there are seven churches. And if you, uh, maybe you have done some work on this, but the number seven is uh, significant throughout the book of Revelation. It shows up a number of times. Uh, seven is related to the, uh, the number of completion or the Sabbath cycle, seven days in a week. And so there's uh, the number seven, is, it's, it shows up in this apocalyptic literature in significant ways. But the seven churches that we get are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And like I said a minute ago, it is clear that the intention was for this letter to be spread around. Each of the churches in each of these locations, getting a copy of it, getting an opportunity to read it and to consider what it is that Christ is saying to them. And one of the things that Jesus tells them is that the situation is going to get worse for his followers. That, that, this is in chapter 2 and chapter 3. So like right off the bat, Jesus is revealing to these churches that it is going to get worse for his followers. And he also gives this indication that in the end, there's only going to be two groups or two outcomes. Those who compromise and those who are faithful. That's it. There, there, there's more than one category, but there's not more than two compromise or faithful. In each of these letters that he writes, we'll see this in the weeks ahead, but they have a basic pattern. Not every one of the seven churches get all pieces of this pattern, but the the general pattern is a description of Christ, some sort of a praise for that church, something that they're doing well with, a rebuke for that church, something that they're struggling with, an invitation to grow, consequences if they don't, and then a promise. Now, not every church gets all pieces of the pattern, but that's the general pattern, and several of the churches get all those pieces. We're going to see churches that are praised for their doctrinal faithfulness and ones that are rebuked for their doctrinal failures. We're going to see churches that are praised for their good works and ones that are rebuked for their lack of good works. There's a sense in which I want you, as we go through the series, to consider each week which of these seven churches might most represent you individually? Which of these uh, words from Jesus might be the one that hits most home 
for you. But I also want you to consider which of these seven churches sojourn is most like. Collectively, us as a body. It sure appears that that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is looking at a church in Ephesus, and he's saying, okay, there's a bunch of people that make up the church at Ephesus. Not everybody in that church has the same strengths or the same weaknesses. But collectively, this is what Jesus has to say about the church at Ephesus. What would Jesus have to say to Sojourn Church? And an invitation for us to take it seriously, to let God do his work of awakening us to what he's called his people to be and do, to actually receive the, com- uh, the condemnation, or the, the, the commendation, to actually receive the praise, to, to celebrate the things that are going on uh, in our lives and in our church that are, that are right and good, and to be willing to receive the critique, to be willing to consider where areas of our personal life or areas of our corporate life that don't align with God's good design. So that, that, that's part of the journey that I want us to take. But here's a little spoiler alert, and I don't want us to miss this. The theme of these letters, these seven letters to the churches, and really the theme of the whole book, is, is a word that you, you're actually really, really familiar with in our culture. We say Nike. Now, you might, if, if you were a, a Greek scholar, you might call it Nike. Or Nike, but it is the Greek word for victory or for conquer. And the brand of tennis shoes and sporting gear that is called Nike, they take it from the Greek goddess, who is the Greek goddess of victory. But there is a Greek word that is referencing, it's the same Greek word, and it's referencing victory or conquering. And it is used 15 times in the book of Revelation, and it is used frequently throughout these letters to the churches. And the point is this, as bad as it may seem or get, God wins and his people in the end win. They conquer. There's victory at the end of this story. You say, well, victory against what? Against who? Well, the message of Revelation says that it's a victory against Satan and sin and death and all who oppose God's good way. That in the end, the way this story concludes is with victory, conquering, overcoming. This is the message of the book of Revelation. In every one of the seven letters, there's a call to conquer. There's a call to overcome. It's this very word, this very idea that God looks at his people and he encourages his people to overcome, to conquer. Why? Because that's where this whole story is going. He encourages his people not to quit because the story ends really well. So maybe you could say this is actually best understood as a call to persevere. The the overarching story of Revelation is the culmination of the grand story, of the big story that God keeps his promise to make the world right again. We, We cannot do that on our own. So we're called to not quit. To hang in there, to keep the faith. Or, you know, as the lead singer of Journey would say, you know, don't stop believing. Hang in there, fight for it, stick with it. The perseverance of the saints. That's the idea that if you are a follower of Jesus, that you that you that you do not quit. So many times on the pages of the Bible, there is this clear indication that those who have been united with God do not quit. They keep going, they keep growing, they keep seeking, they keep serving, they keep praying. They do not lose heart. 
Now, John is not suggesting that this is a special category of God's people. He actually has the audacity to say that it is the only category of God's people. That's the point of the perseverance of the saints. That true Christians persevere. That true Christians hang in there. We're in a cultural moment right now where deconstructing your faith or, or walking away from, from, from God is just becoming like, the, like an extremely common thing to happen. You're hearing people walking away from the Lord all the time, walking away from his church, walking away from his people. This is a sobering word. As, as, as Jesus looks at his churches and he calls them to conquer, to overcome, to persevere, he's actually saying, that's the marker of my people. There's not some of my people who quit and then some of my people who don't quit. It's actually, my people don't quit. In other words, the proof is in the pudding. It's why James says, faith without works is dead. The, the, the Bible is not pitting faith against works. Faith isn't, is like, faith isn't really a thing. Faith has an object. So the, the Bible doesn't say things like, I have faith. It invites you to say things like, I have faith in blank. What, what, what is your faith in? See, the ultimate question is the object of your faith. And that, that is why the issue of works is such a big deal. It does take work to get us to God. Do you know that? It does take work to get us to God. The question the Bible wants to put before us is, whose works? Whose works? Yours or Christ's? Where, where do you put your hope? You, you put your hope in your works? Or do you put your hope in Christ's works? Do you put your trust in what you do? Or do you put your trust in what Jesus does? And see, the, the message of the Bible is that as important as that shift is, how in the world do you know? How in the world do you know where you've put your faith? How do you know if you're trusting in your works or in Christ's works? Well, the proof is in the pudding. You see, when, when you realize that it cannot be your works that gets you to God, and you reorient what you trust to save you from your works to Christ's works. You realize, I can't save me. All of my efforts can't save me. But Christ's work can save me. The Bible says, if you've done that, there will be evidence. Faith without works is dead. This faith in Christ produces evidence. When you stop trusting in your works to save you, your works, instead of becoming worthless or unimportant, are given new meaning and new focus. You're freed. See, the, the reason why we can actually try to become a church not for ourselves is not because once you come to Christ, you don't matter anymore. So stop trying to meet your needs. This is just that, forget you. you, you you're, you're nothing now. No, the reason we can try to become a church not for ourselves is not because we don't matter, but because why we do what we do is dramatically different. We, we aren't trying to save ourselves anymore. We're freed from that. So we don't have to sit there and think about how many good deeds are enough to keep God happy. 
Listen, the good news about Christ's work on our behalf is that he's already won the happiness of God. God's smile is already upon you. He's already happy. Now you can go love God and you can love people with the baggage and with all the stuff. You can go love them without doing it for your sake. You actually love them for their sake. You're free to love God and to love people as yourself. This is the kind of trust the Bible is talking about. And Revelation is telling us that if in the end, if that, let's see, Revelation is telling us that if the end of our faith, if, that, if that's where we've put our hope, if we've put our hope in Christ, then that is going to stand the tests of all the trials, of all the hardships, of all the ups and downs of this world. Because we're reminded that our hope is in Christ. And because of that, he's freed us to actually live life in light of what he said. Those who have placed their hope in Jesus will endure. Revelation 12, 17 says it this way. It's talking about the dragon becoming furious. And then it says, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. There's uh, multiple references. I, I don't want to turn to all of them, but there's just time and time again where there's this recognition that those who have put their hope in Christ, their life shows up in a specific way. Just like James says, faith without works is dead. Real faith produces evidence. It's not the works that bring life. It's life that brings the fruits. And the book of Revelation invites us into that kind of a perspective, a recognition that perseverance, that the evidence of our faith being in Jesus is crucial. Last, Christ in the churches. I want to finish by exploring the imagery right here in Revelation 1. I want you to see that John sees Jesus here. It's Jesus' vision, but John sees Jesus as a priest. He mentions these seven lampstands. And uh, these lampstands, he's pulling the imagery from Zechariah chapter 4 and actually from the Old Testament in general. The, the lampstand is connecting back to this Old Testament description of something that was found in the tabernacle and then again in the temple. And more specifically, they were found in the Holy of Holies where only the high priest was permitted to go and that only happened one time a year. And when Jesus says to John... Here's, what I, here's how I want to talk about my churches. I want to talk about my churches as golden lampstands. By Jesus referring to his people, the church, that way, he is affirming that they are now given access to God in a unique way. That the lampstand, just like it was in the Holy of Holies, in the presence of God, so now God's people have that kind of intimacy, that kind of closeness, that kind of relationship with God. They're with him in a unique way. And then don't miss this. Right in the middle of the lampstands is Jesus. As Jesus gives this, this vision to John, not only does he refer to the churches as lampstands in verse 12, but then in verse 13, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with golden sash around his chest. That, that is Jesus. So what, what, what we see here 
is that the people of God are with God in a unique way, and Jesus is with the people in a unique way. He is right there in their presence, in the midst of all the craziness, all the trials, all the hardship. If you think about it, was what it was like to be a Christian in the first century, towards the end of the first century, it was terrible. And this vision says Jesus is present with the churches. So Jesus brings you to God. He's brought you into this unique relationship with the God of heaven, and that he is present with you in a unique way. The church is with God, and God is with the church. Intimacy, relationship, involvement. We are not alone in this world. Christ is in the presence of his people, and the people are in the most intimate presence of God. Such a beautiful picture of Jesus as a priest, as one who, you know, the, the priest brings the people to God. And here is Jesus who has brought his people to God, and yet he himself dwells among them. Right there among the lampstands, there is Jesus, our perfect high priest. But don't let yourself make Jesus one-dimensional. In this text, John is seeing Jesus as a priest, but he also sees Jesus as a judge and as a king. You know, about 10 years ago uh, on NPR, there's a, a host named Terry Gross, and she did an interview with a Princeton Seminary professor about the book of Revelation on, on her show, uh, Fresh Air. And you can go look that up. But there was this kind of persistent reference throughout the interview that Revelation actually presents a Jesus that is the opposite of the Jesus from the rest of the New Testament. And they began to point out all the passages in Revelation, maybe not all of them, but many of the passages in Revelation where there is a sense of Jesus actually bringing judgment or actually judging sin. And as they discussed this, uh, this reality, their quick conclusion was, there's something wrong here. That's not the Jesus of the rest of the New Testament. Well, the problem with that is that that's a one-dimensional Jesus. That, that's a Jesus who is a priest, who is one who brings forgiveness, one who knows how to present the people to the God, to the God of heaven. But it's a one-dimensional Jesus. John here, in his language, as he is trying to interpret for us the vision that he's been given, he sees Jesus not only as a priest. A priest, yes. One who is about forgiveness and grace, yes. But he also sees Jesus as a judge and as a king. Very, very briefly, he, he sees him as a king. Verse 15, it talks about feet of burnished bronze. And if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, you're, you're going to quickly uh, be able to put that imagery together. But in the book of Daniel, there's, a, an, image of a, of a, uh, there's an image that has uh, various kinds of metals. And it talks about its, its feet. And uh, John is, is bringing this Old Testament imagery back to reference Jesus as a, as a wholly different kind of king, as the king that will last forever, as a king of beauty with these feet that will not fail. And so he sees Jesus as the king who is coming, and the book of Revelation unpacks this picture of Jesus as a king who is going to set up his kingdom. And then it's kind of scattered with the imagery of a judge. You notice in verses 13 through 16, it says that Jesus has eyes like fire, has a roar to his voice, a two-edged sword in his mouth. 
He has a face that has the strength of the sun. If you think those things are nothing, look at what happened to John in verse 17. When John saw this Jesus, in verse 17 he says, when I saw that, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. That's bringing Isaiah language to bear. When Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he stood before God, he said, I don't belong here. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. He, he falls apart before the glory of God. And John does the exact same thing here. He falls down like he was dead. You see, the, the judgment of Jesus, the, the holiness of Jesus, the standards of Jesus, they, they make us all look in, in, inept. And John falls down like he's dead, but then what does Jesus do? Jesus puts his hand on him. Verses, second half of verse 17. Fall down like I was dead, but he said, he, he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So John falls down, you know, like, like some sort of international soccer player who acts like he's like, I'm dead. And Jesus is like, no, I'm the one who died. I'm the one who died. The judgment is real, but I took it for you. Your response, in a sense, is justified. You should die, but I'm the one who died. And I'm alive forevermore. And you know what I hold in my hands? I hold my hands the keys. I, I'm, I'm the answer. I'm what you're looking for. I'm the one. Do not fear. He just pours like Revelation 21 vibes all over it. Like I'm coming to make all things new. I am the one who gives life eternal. Come to me. Trust me. Put your hope in me. And so even Jesus, as the judge, reveals that his judgments are severe, but he has taken the judgment for you. He is the one who died. Not John. Not you. So in the weeks ahead, we're going to hear both hard things and comforting things. And my prayer is that we let Jesus do his work of forming us, individually and collectively, in, into his image. Uh, one commentator suggests that Revelation is an invitation to put down the wrong kinds of fears, but to pick up the right kinds of fears. There are legitimate things that should, should cause us to be concerned. If we look at our lives, there are legitimate things that should cause us to be concerned. And the book of Revelation invites us to pick up the right kinds of fears. Instead of being afraid of trials and hardship and persecution... Maybe we should be rightly afraid of being apart from the God of heaven, having put our hope and trust in the wrong kinds of things. You see, a one-dimensional Jesus is just a Jesus that forgives. But that's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is coming to judge, but he also comes with the solution for the judgment. And the invitation stands for each and every one of us. Jesus is the king of the world. He is the righteous judge who will wipe away all sin. And he is the priest who actually came, became the sacrifice so his people could be reunited with God.
May we allow him to do his work in us. Now we're going to go to communion and we are going to eat the bread and the cup and we're going to be invited to remember that if Jesus didn't come and live and do what he did, uh, that this would all be, be hopeless. But as Emmerich mentioned a moment ago, we're having a couple changes to our service uh, order and, and one of those changes is, is, is here. And so what, what we're going to do for a few weeks and as we enter into Lent, uh, at least for this window of time, is we're going to actually start with a couple minutes of music, no lyrics, no singing. And uh, that's an invitation for you. You know, throughout our entire service, uh, our desire is that your heart is being prepped and prepared. Early in our service, we have a a time of confession where you are invited uh, to lay your heart before God. And so the preparation for this moment is happening throughout the entire service. Uh, But for these next few weeks, we're going to have a couple minutes where it's just music. And you can rush to the table if you want to rush. You can take two minutes and and, and, uh, talk with God. Uh, the prayers that are in our bulletin will be on the screen uh, for, for you to consider. And when you're ready, come to the table. Come to the table and break the bread and drink the cup. And remember uh, what Christ has done for you. Uh, there will also be a couple prayer team members uh, in the back. Uh, and if you would like someone to talk to uh, or you need someone to pray with, uh, look for people that are wearing the, uh, the little lanyard that says, uh, that says prayer team. If our service will please come, let's pray. God, we thank you for this complex, this heavy uh, book. We thank you that it's actually good news, that it's actually meant for the revealing, for the declaration that you're going to keep your promise to make all things right, to, to make the world as it should be again, to reverse the curse 100%, to actually make, make your people what you always wanted them to be, You would actually make us whole and right. That you would make us into the image of your son, Jesus. God, we thank you for this picture of Jesus right among the lampstands. Right right among the churches. That even as there's uh, some encouragement and some critique, that Jesus is not quitting on us. God, we thank you for the invitation from him for us to not quit either. For us to overcome. For us to persevere for us to hang in and, and to keep going. God, would you, would you help us to see how it is that because what Jesus has done for us, that, that is all the fuel we need to keep, to keep trusting, to keep moving forward, to keep walking with you. God, my guess is that there's some people in this room that are struggling. There's some people in this room that are considering walking away, that are considering uh, giving up on, on you and the promises that you've, that you've made. God, I pray that, that, that this morning, I pray that this series, I pray that the fellowship of the, of the people of God, God, that we would work together to encourage each other to not lose heart, to not give up, to overcome. God, we thank you that because you conquer, you invite us to be conquerors. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.